Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. I covered a lot of the new features on Windows 11 from the leak, quote-unquote leak, (laughs) from last week. But this week was the official launch or the official announcements for the upcoming Windows 11. And there were some other features and announcements that were not evident from the leak. I'm not going to cover absolutely everything that was talked about in all the sessions, but I would like to cover some of my highlights. First up, Windows 11 is going to move to a once yearly feature update model. The Home and Pro editions will get 24 months of support. Enterprise and Education will get 36 months of support. At this time, it looks like the long-term service branch will continue in Windows 11 as well. Windows 11 will be 64-bit only, which to me makes sense and is long overdue, but it will throw the cat amongst the pigeons nonetheless. Many enterprises kept a lot of 32-bit Windows 7 and Windows 10 around, to avoid app compat issues. So it's money time, Chaco. (laughs) You kick that can down the road, now it's time to actually deal with it and move to 64-bit. It's in everyone's interest anyways. If you wanna be able to leverage more modern hardware, 64-bit makes sense. ZDNet also compiled a list of the overall hardware requirements for Windows 11. Other than a modern dual-core 64-bit processor, also required is a 1 gigahertz clock speed, 64 gigs free on your drive, at least 4 gigs of memory, must be UEFI secure boot capable, requires greater than 9-inch screen with HD resolution, must be DirectX 12 compatible graphics, and probably the most significant one, and the one that has pissed off a lot of people, is the requirement for TPM version 2, which I believe is the trusted platform module chip, if my memory serves me correctly. And this one could be tricky for orgs who cheap out on hardware and maybe keep old hardware around for some time. It's been pretty standard in enterprise-grade hardware for a couple of years now. So most in enterprise should be okay. Those... With gaming machines or just regular commercial machines that don't have a TPM chip where it's not as common, this could be a little bit tricky. And there's been a lot of people tweeting about having these brand new gaming rigs that have serious specs, but they don't have that TPM chip. Now, it does make a lot of sense to have it as a requirement to help secure the OS and devices more, but this could be a challenge for some. And if you'd like to check to see if your machines are capable of running Windows 11, are compatible, 
there is a free utility that you can run right now today to see. And there have been a lot of people on Twitter tweeting that their images are not compatible. So set your expectations. And by the way, actually, you might even be surprised to find that your machine is compatible. If you check your machine for compatibility with Windows 11 and it's saying that it's not compatible and you think it might be because of the TPM chip, I suggest you keep listening to this episode because Richard Hay had a really good tip on how you can get TPM 2.0 on some AMD and Intel CPUs without having a standalone chip. Some of them have a TPM feature and I'll talk about that in the scripts, tricks and tips section later on this episode. But continuing on for home users, there will be a requirement for a Microsoft account and an internet connection when going through the first time setup. That is also going to go over about as well as a fart in church. In some positive news for the enterprise, Windows updates are being reduced in size by about 40%. And that is great and sorely needed. I've been talking a lot. Actually, I talked about it last week on my script-based action that I created for use with Control Hub on removing some of the SCCM cache because it really did add up because Windows updates have become huge with these cumulative updates. So the fact that it's going to be reduced by about 40% is good for enterprise. And also, even better for enterprise and for any Windows user, they're saying that the updates will run in the background, kind of like on Chrome OS. Unfortunately, this background upgrading looks like it won't work on server OS other than the core edition for the time being. If updates can happen in the background, be non-intrusive and not require reboots, that's going to be a big win. Microsoft Teams appears to be going into the OS, which to me makes a lot of sense. It's like having FaceTime and iMessage in Mac OS. But obviously Teams also has a widespread enterprise presence too but I bet this will lead to an anti-competition lawsuit. And the integration looks pretty interesting too. It's not just Teams as it is on Windows 10. It looks like it's going to more natively integrate into the taskbar and fit kind of fluidly into Windows 11 experience. One of the biggest features to catch fire on social media during the announcements is the support for running Android apps in the store. If you've been an avid listener to the podcast, this was actually a rumor that I covered a few months ago. The excitement about this further cements the idea to me that maybe I'm more of a zenial than a millennial. My phone is important to me, but I personally wouldn't choose to run Android apps on my PC over just going to a proper website or a full desktop app. Even the same for my Mac. You know, I'd rather use a full rich native experience than like a squished app type of experience. One example shown during the demonstration was the TikTok app. Kind of underwhelming to me personally, but okay. But what was pretty significant to me is the fact that they're bringing Amazon's app store into the mix with the store. The availability of the Amazon app store on Windows 11 they say will allow developers to easily expand their app reach to Windows devices and increase their return on investment. Microsoft customers will be able to discover a new selection of Android apps in the Microsoft Store on Windows 11 and download them through Amazon's App Store. The initial Amazon App Store selection will be available to Windows customers later this year. 
Microsoft also stated they'll continue to try to be more flexible for developers, suggesting if you bring your own commerce engine for your product, you can still publish it in the store, but keep 100% of the revenue. If you choose to use Microsoft's commerce engine, they will take a cut, but it sounds like it is nowhere near as large a cut as some of the competition. And for the store itself, it will apparently support most installer types, including MSI, which seems like a crazy about face, but maybe they intend to use Windows Package Manager and have multiple package formats per app, potentially. I guess we'll see, but that kind of goes against what I thought the ethos and the direction of applications on the Windows OS is supposed to be in the future, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. On last week's episode of the podcast, I covered the new snapping feature within Windows, along with things like the new start menu, the return of widgets, and more, but there was some more details shared around the snapping in the demo. They showed that there's going to be something called snap groups. So when, say, a Teams message pops up and steals your focus for a while, rather than having to rearrange your windows and figure out how to go back to how you had everything before your disruption, you can now just click on a snap group to get right back to where you were. They didn't really show too much of File Explorer, and now that it's going to be a 64-bit operating system, it'll be interesting to see if they're going to make any significant changes, potentially having a 64-bit file explorer that can handle longer paths or something like that, but there wasn't anything mentioned, at least at the time of this recording. As also mentioned on the podcast before, the OS remembering your window layout when undocking and then docking again is going to be a thing in Windows 11. This has been in preview for a couple of months now on Windows 10. MSPowerUser.com reported that several features or apps that are currently in the OS are going to be deprecated or removed in Windows 11. So just to go quickly through a list, Cortana will no longer be included in the first boot experience or pinned to the taskbar anymore. Desktop wallpaper cannot be roamed to or from devices when signed in with a Microsoft account. Internet Explorer is going to be disabled. Microsoft Edge is the recommended replacement and includes IE mode, which may be useful in certain scenarios. If you work in enterprise, you already know that. Math input panel is going to be removed. Math recognizer will install on demand and includes the math input control and recognizer. So it sounds like you just have to go in and get that other app if you want something else. News and interests will have new functionality and can be found by clicking the widgets icon on the taskbar. So being delivered in a different way. S mode is only available now for Windows 11 Home Edition. Quick status from the lock screen and associated settings are removed. The snipping tool is going to change over to snip and sketch. Tablet mode is removed and new functionality and capabilities included for keyboard attach and detach postures, which they kind of showed in the video a little bit. They say some icons may no longer appear in the system tray for upgraded devices, including some of your previous customizations. So when you're upgrading, you might lose those. Alignment to the bottom of the screen is the only location allowed. Apps can no longer customize areas of the taskbar. People is no longer present on the taskbar too. Timeline is removed. Some similar functionality is available in Microsoft Edge, they say. Wallet is removed. 
Touch Keyboard will no longer dock and undock keyboard layouts on screen sizes 18 inches and larger. And that one's a little bit interesting because they did show that they've got a much smarter touch keyboard and it seems to be a pretty fixed size, a smaller size, and you're able to drag it around the screen. So if you're on a touch screen, if you've got like a large tablet device, you could have it maybe over to the right side of the screen and use your thumb almost like, you know, old school with the smaller phones being able to text. You can actually just use the keyboard with maybe your right thumb or your left thumb. So that could potentially actually be kind of cool, I think. For developers, Project Reunion is now called Windows App SDK and could be a good way to more easily and quickly uplift apps to use the new Windows 11 features, which will still allow you to support those Windows 10 users too. I saw Michael Niehaus shared that Windows 11 will be a free upgrade from Windows 10. The free upgrade will begin to roll out to eligible Windows 10 PCs this holiday and continuing into 2022. And next week, Microsoft will begin to share an early build of Windows 11 to the Windows Insider program. So there was more announced, but I feel like those are my highlights, at least for now. I know they're going to have some other side sessions throughout the day, so maybe some more interesting things will come up. Overall, not really huge changes, which is probably a good thing, at least for enterprise, because when they try to make too drastic of changes, things tend to go wrong. It'll be interesting to see if they're able to shake that boogeyman of, you know, every second OS release tends to be a disaster. So XP, good. Vista, bad. Windows 7, good. Windows 8, bad. Windows 10, uh, let's say good. Windows 11, uh, question mark. I guess we'll find out. But if they don't change things too drastically, then it should be okay. Let's wait and see. John McAvee, the creator of McAvee Antivirus, was found dead in a Spanish prison cell this week, not long after it had been decided that he would be extradited back to the U.S. where he was facing charges for tax evasion. Obviously, McAvee is still a player in enterprise security to this day, but John McAvee sold the company back in 1994. He once claimed to make about $2,000 a day in cryptocurrency trading. U.S. prosecutors allege that McAvee failed to report income made from promoting cryptocurrencies, making speaking engagements, and selling the rights to his life story for a TV documentary. The indictment, which was issued in June but only unsealed in October, said Mr. McAvee failed to file tax returns from 2014 to 2018, despite receiving considerable income from several sources. Mr. McAvee allegedly evaded taxes by directing his income to be paid into bank accounts and cryptocurrency exchange accounts in the names of others, according to the indictment. RTE state that he was also accused of evading the U.S. tax office by concealing assets, including properties, a yacht, and a car by putting them in the name of others. If convicted, he could have faced up to 30 years in prison. In a tweet on the 16th of June, responding to U.S. authorities' belief that he had hidden crypto, he said he wish he did. He said, quote, My remaining assets are all seized. My friends evaporated through fear of association. I have nothing. Yet, I regret nothing. 
end quote. He was 75 years old and obviously is a very polarizing figure. If my memory serves me well, I believe he also launched a failed bid for the presidency at one point. Still, I don't think anyone can deny that he did have an impact on computing and also enterprise computing with McAfee, so there's that. Citrix's service continuity is now generally available. This is a complete redesign of the way the Citrix virtual apps and desktop service brokers sessions to users. Service continuity helps to ensure users have connectivity to their critical apps and desktops in the event of a disruption. Citrix's article state that their preview had more than 100 customers and thousands of devices involved. They also state that when they contacted those customers for feedback, the IT admin said they weren't aware of any issues or users or user reports during those days. And they even saw the first users launching sessions during an outage, which they say is the best testament to the power of the new feature. In their announcement article, they said some IT admins from the Citrix service providers program called service continuity a clever way to fix a complex issue and one from the manufacturing vertical called it a lifesaver. I mean, I could understand an admin saying that because one of the biggest pains in the butt is when Citrix goes down. And a lot of times it's nothing to do with the product itself. It's just the underlying infrastructure that it relies on. And if this provides service continuity, even during a network outage, it's gonna be pretty cool. And sticking with Citrix real quick, Citrix WEM version 2106 has been released, which brings support for the Windows 10 2009 template introduced in Citrix Optimizer, the ability to overwrite or merge application security rules, plus several bug fixes too, so check that out. ZDNet reported this week that the EU and UK have greenlit a working agreement on data adequacy that will allow personal data to continue to flow unimpeded from the EU to the UK, which should be a huge relief to many businesses on both sides. The article does emphasize that the agreement is based on the current status quo, which involves the current UK version of GDPR being the norm. At the time, the UK's data compliance policy and documentation was reported to be a very close copy and possibly a copy and paste of the EU's existing GDPR. So you could see why the UK and EU would kind of align and agree to allow data to flow unimpeded because the policies are very similar. It's stated that if the UK decides to alter their data compliance policies, the agreement could be subject to change. I think it's a pretty interesting story because the EU's GDPR and California's Consumer Privacy Acts have made a pretty large impression on the world. I wonder if this is something that will be standardized more globally over time and if we could find ourselves in a situation with many nations having very different policies to one another. It could be difficult to juggle for a global internet and global markets. In a pretty sick and infuriating story, The Verge reported that Canon Information Technology installed cameras with AI-enabled smile recognition technology in its offices in China. The cameras only let smiling workers enter rooms or book meetings, ensuring that every employee is definitely 100% happy all the time. 
I don't think any job is worth going through that. So my commiserations to the people that have to work there. In news that should actually make people happy, a new pilot program has been launched in Ireland for employers to trial a four-day work week for their organization. The program will see employers introducing a four-day work week for their workers over a six-month period starting in January 2022. Galway Daily reports, as part of the trial, the government has announced it will fund a research partnership to assess the economic, social, and environmental impacts of a four-day working week in an Irish context. Tanishta Leo Vradkar was quoted as saying, quote, It's been shown that huge numbers of people can be just as productive while working at home rather than having to come into the office every day, and it has accelerated the shift towards more flexible and family-friendly working hours. End quote. Varadkar also rightly suggested that the pandemic has caused us to rethink and reevaluate how we all work. Interestingly, before the pandemic even began, a large local employer in Galway, Ireland actually moved permanently to a four-day week for their full-time employees, and they shared the results and deemed it a huge success. So if this becomes the norm, I think this is going to be pretty good for everyone. Life is for living, not for working. ZDNet had a really interesting opinion piece this week by Danny Palmer on if ransomware has peaked or not. It goes into the fact most ransomware groups originate in Russia and the difficulty of a gang setting up somewhere else like in Ireland or the US for example because in those countries local law enforcement would relatively quickly shut down their operation. While in Russia that does not appear to be the case and Russia cannot extradite its citizens. It's shared how ransomware was discussed at the recent G7 meeting and that gangs won't be too pleased about this type of notoriety. They want to be known enough to convince victims to pay, but probably don't want the likes of the US government tailing them. The opinion piece does insinuate that the Russian government may have an agreement with these attackers to just not attack Russian interests. And it says that these attackers have infiltrated Russian networks and then quickly retreated or stopped their attacks. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, there's reports and there's kind of a narrative about all of this when it comes to China and Russia. So take it with a grain of salt, but I found it pretty interesting just around the fact that there's no extradition policy allowed and that local law enforcement there doesn't seem to quickly shut down these operations or shut them down at all, possibly might explain things. And as ransomware attacks surge, the FBI is doubling down on its guidance to affected businesses. They say, don't pay the cyber criminals. But the US government also offers a little noticed incentive for those who do pay. The ransoms may be tax deductible. The Associated Press reports that the IRS offers no formal guidance on ransomware payments, but multiple tax experts interviewed by the Associated Press said deductions are usually allowed under law and established guidance. Some fear that the deduction is potentially problematic as it incentivizes potentially businesses to just pay the ransom. At a minimum, they say the deductibility sends a discordant message to businesses under duress, which I know the guru tweeted about it being a very mixed message, and I'd agree with him. 
And in another security story, Chrome has another zero-day vulnerability. Forbes reports the vulnerability CVE-2021-30554 is found in WebGL, a JavaScript API for rendering. And there's very little shared and very little known about this vulnerability, which is somewhat common for Google's vulnerabilities. They hold off on disclosing too much upfront. To combat this threat, Chrome users should immediately go to settings, help about Google Chrome. And if your browser version on Linux, Mac OS, or Windows is listed as 91.0.4472.114 or above, you are safe. If it's below, you are not. So manually check for updates and restart the browser once the update is ready. Get patching. And some quick hit stories. I think this is going to be a long episode because of the Windows 11 announcements. I don't really know until after I've edited, but I've got that feeling. But some quick hits. The Nevergreen module that I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast already has now been updated. 18 new apps have been added and the Adobe Creative Cloud app has been fixed. Also, there's been some major internal refactoring done in the previous release, which was, I believe, five days ago. So there's been a couple of releases in quick succession, and that makes it much easier to add new apps with less code. In the same vein, the Evergreen PowerShell module from the Great Iron Parker had an update 2106.402, which Add several new apps, including Amazon Coretto, Antifex GoScript, FreeFem, Gephi, Pratt, Scratch, Gretel, and more. There have also been updates for private functions get architecture with additional processor architecture detections, updates to the get GitHub repo release to return a custom object if the GitHub API is rate limited, and a break change removing the portable installers and zip file types from Notepad++. And to end this week's news, some really good news. RDC Man version 8.2 is now available. It is now officially no longer deprecated and is instead part of SysInternals tools. It is even now available as a single executable. This release contains many bug fixes, including security fixes, which I think that's been a big problem with RDC Man over the last few months. It didn't look like there was an update coming and there was a pretty significant security vulnerability. So if you have continued to use it, it's really good idea to upgrade to RDC Man version 8.2 as soon as possible. And now a hot job. I'm going to try and keep this short so there's not going to be a whole lot of information about this job. I'm sorry. I will share a link to it for more details and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 182 and it'll be right at the top of the list of links under hot jobs. But this hot job is a remote work opportunity as a people operations manager for Hot Jar. A hot job at Hot Jar. They say, please do not apply for this role if you are not physically located in Europe, Africa, or the Middle East. The company builds behavior analytics software for businesses who sell online. You will be expected to use your ability to quickly develop trust to gain an understanding of the challenges facing Hotjar's team and their leaders, 
Use these insights to design solutions, draft actionable proposals, and manage implementations. Build, coach, and develop a lean and efficient people operations team, and more. It's kind of a cookie cutter job spec, to be honest. Requirements include experience in senior people operations role, proven project and program management skills, a desire to work in a respectful, transparent, and collaborative work environment, and more. The compensation range for the role is between 65,000 euros to 95,000 euros annually. So if that interests you, again, I'll share the link and you can go apply. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. A special ITQ free ebook edition of the awesome VDI design guide has been made available. So if you didn't get the book when it was released, check out this free edition of the book for yourself. My boss over at Control Up, Joel, shared a pretty handy tip for those working in marketing or just people who rely on images quite often. If you need a transparent background image, like a logo for a PowerPoint deck, but you get annoyed by the fake transparent background images on Google search, he says use the Bing image search. The PNG sites have not infiltrated there. And yeah, I find that really annoying when it looks like it's a transparent background, but then you try to use it and it's an actual like mock-up of a transparent background and it doesn't overlay on images. It's so annoying. Richard Hay shared that if you don't have an onboard TPM chip with your motherboard, you can check your AMD or Intel CPU because some of them have a TPM option in BIOS that is provided off the CPU. It will be labeled as FTPM and is disabled by default in most cases. Just turn it on to get TPM version 2. So very that could be useful for those who are checking compatibility for Windows 11. I saw a really interesting blog post this week on how you can use Ansible to download and update NCC on all of your Nutanix clusters. It's pretty interesting. I'm using some control up SBAs for updating my VMware tools automatically. So this is kind of in that line, but applying to Nutanix clusters, pretty cool. Andreas Nick shared a beta of his MSIX forcelets PowerShell commandlets. He states that with this, the whole PSF injection process can be automated. Furthermore, a self-compiled version of the PSF is available. Microsoft has not published a new release since April 2020. So good job, Andreas, for keeping things up there. Thanks to Thorsten once more this week for sharing an old article by HackingArticles.in, which shares a very basic getting started guide for AppLocker. So there's been a lot of talk about AppLocker. It's been around for a long time, but not everyone knows about it. And if you don't know about it and you want to get a quick getting starter guide, check out this. Stu Carl shared a blog post on configuring Citrix ADC gateway slash AAA vServer to authenticate against Azure AD using OAuth. So pretty specific use case, but I think it's one that's going to be somewhat common. So if that interests you, check out his blog post. And finally, the awesome Helga Klein shared a script for list user writable directories that scans the file system for directories that are user writable. The PowerShell script uses his awesome set ACL or setacl.exe to scan the file system for directories that are user writable. 
I'm still a huge fan of Set Ackle, I'm gonna call it, I know. I know Ackle triggers people, but Set Ackle is a really awesome product and he's extending the use cases and features with this really handy script. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you all so much for listening.